Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. In the first half of the 20th century, Kurt Lewin created an equation that helped explain more than ever before the way that we understand human behavior. Lewin's equation simply stated that behavior was a function of the person in their environment. Now, previous to Lewin's equation and Lewin's discovery was that our human behavior was largely understood to be a function of a person, of the type of person you were, the kind of person you were, your personality. Examples of this line of thinking still exist today. Maybe you've struggled with a diet or didn't have success gaining traction in a workout program previously. Potentially, the conclusion that you came to was, I just don't have the same amount of willpower as those other people. The people that I see being successful with their diet, the people that I see being successful with their workout program, there's some fundamental difference in the kind of person I am or the type of person I am compared to these other people. Or maybe you've once tried to take on a new project, maybe writing something or creating something only to kind of lose steam halfway through the process. Perhaps the conclusion that you came to again was similar to the other types of conclusions that you just weren't really someone who finished well. You were a good starter, but you weren't somebody who could finish projects well. And so you looked and identified and compared yourself to other people and recognized that the difference between outcomes was a function of the type of person that you are versus the type of person that they are. But that's not what Lewin's equation says. Lewin's equation factors in the role and significance and the importance of the environment in influencing and determining our behavior and the choices that we make. An interesting example of this emerged about 15 years ago. There were a group of researchers who conducted a study trying to determine why certain countries had higher percentages of organ donors than other countries. And so this group of researchers was analyzing data, uh, looking at 11 countries in Europe. And what they noticed confused them, and they had a hard time solving this gap between these different countries and the rates and percentages of people who chose to be organ donors versus those who didn't choose to be organ donors. In fact, here's a chart that looks at that data. Now, what you see is there are seven countries with incredibly high levels of participation, people who have chosen to be organ donors. And then there's another group of four countries with incredibly low levels of participation as being organ donors. And so the researchers kind of begin to wonder and postulate as to why this could be the case. Maybe that there were religious differences or cultural differences. There was something different about the kinds and the type of people who would choose to be organ donors versus the kinds and the type of people who wouldn't choose to be organ donors. And they did all sorts of comparative work to try to come to some type of realization that would prove that it was something based on the type of person that lived in one country versus living in another. But they came to large problems with that type of theory. Because if you take, for example, Sweden and Denmark, these countries are physically located very close to each other. They have really similar demographic, cultural, and social fabric that orchestrates and determines kind of who these people are and what their lives look like. And so without any differences in the kinds and the type of people that live in Sweden and Denmark, how could you explain the huge gap in the percentages of people who chose to be organ donors and those who didn't? Sweden, 86% of the people chose to be organ donors. Denmark, just over 4% of the people who live in Denmark 
did not, uh, chose to be organ donors. So how do you explain the difference? Is it the fact that people in Sweden are just more generous and benevolent than the people in Denmark who might seem to be more selfish? Well, no, that's not the answer. Because again, as Lewin's equation explained, it is not based solely on the kind or the type of person that you are. The environment really matters. And the environment in this case, and the environment in this context, was based on the type of form that the people in these countries received. Now, the people in the countries with a high percentage of organ donors, they were given a form that asked them to opt out if they did not want to be an organ donor. So they had to make a decision to opt out of what was already a default option to be an organ donor. But the converse is true with the four countries with low levels and percentages of people who choose to be organ donors. They had to check here to donate. They had to opt in to be an organ donor. That was the only difference in the results and the differences between these different countries and these groups of people about who was an organ donor and who wasn't. It was not about the kind or type of person they were. It was not about whether or not one was good and one was bad, one was benevolent and one was malevolent. It was whether or not you had a form that you had to opt in or opt out of. Now, I think this is important today, not because I'm trying to persuade you to be an organ donor, although maybe you should consider being an organ donor if you're not. But the reason that I bring it up today is to emphasize the impact of our environment on our behavior as people. Our environment is the single biggest predictor of the way that we live our lives, how we choose to live our lives. Our environment really, really matters. And I've noticed over the last six months, our environment is radically changing. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the single biggest influence into our environment, the way that we live our lives, the context that we find our lives ourselves in, is the people that we choose to spend our lives with. Who you live with, who you spend your time with, the friendships and the relationships that you have has a huge impact on your environment, which has a huge impact on the, ki- on the type and the kind of person that you are. But where we find ourselves after six months of COVID is we recognize that we are now in an opt-in relational environment as opposed to an opt-out relational environment. What does that mean? Well, previously, it was really easy to be in a relationship with people. You bumped into people all the time. You encountered them on the streets. You would meet them out for lunch or dinner. You'd have play dates and do all sorts of social activities, and you didn't spend much time thinking about whether or not you should be participating in those relationships. You were in an opt-out relational environment. If you didn't want to spend time with people, you had to make a deliberate decision not to. It was so easy to be in a relationship with people six months ago. Now, we're in an opt-in environment. We have to make a deliberate, willful choice to be in relationship with other people. We have to factor in, like, do I feel safe? Am I concerned? Is there some level of you know, safety that we need to navigate for me to participate in a relationship with somebody? Is there some level of proximity that I have to, to, have to navigate? It is much harder now than ever before to be in a relationship with each other. Now you say, Stephen, yeah, but we have the power of technology, which has allowed us to be connected at a level that we've never been able to be connected before. And I would agree. I think that you're right. We have unbelievable powers of technology. But just like we are experiencing this morning, the power to be connected through technology is not the same about being in relationship with one another the way that we used to be. Listening to me this morning through this virtual platform is one thing. 
it's far different to be in the same room, to get to see each other's faces and to see each other's expressions, for me to be able to see you as you see me, to be able to talk after the service or before the service, to give a handshake or a hug. All of those are hugely important to the depth and the quality and the nature and character of our relationships with one another. So I am not saying that all of the virtual technology that we use to stay connected is wrong. What I'm saying is it's not enough. The way that we are spending our means of being in relationship with one another has changed and it's eroded and it's led to this place, I fear, of profound isolation. Now, maybe not isolation in the physical sense. Some of you, you're like, I'm sitting next to people right now. I don't feel that isolated. But what has happened, because we aren't able to be in the same places and spaces in the same way that we used to be with each other, is there is this creeping level of isolation that has settled into our world. I hear it in people's voices when I call them on the phone. I see it in people's eyes when I meet them in person. When you pick up the phone and you say, hey, how are you? Most of you, when I talk to you, you're like, well, you know, it's some acknowledgement that life is really hard right now, that things are different than they used to be. And almost every single person that I talk to expresses some level of loneliness or isolation, even if it's in the subcontext of the conversation. Even if it's not physical isolation and you're surrounded by people, we don't have the same access that we once did to our friends and to our families and to our colleagues. And so because of that, there are other types of isolation that we're navigating, that we're dealing with. Emotional isolation. We're not able to share our lives with people at the same depth and the same significance that we once were. Spiritual isolation. This is really tough on all of us to not be able to be in person together as a church. Now, thanks be to God that we get to change that. And next Sunday, September 20th at 10 a.m., we have church on the lawn and we'll begin to rectify our inability to gather together in person. But it has not come without consequence. It has not come without impact on the way that we feel isolated and distanced and separated from each other. Technology is not enough. The way that we're currently living is not enough. Our current construct of our environment isn't sufficient going forward. It does not lead us to a place of human flourishing. Now, I recognize that so much of this has been outside of our control. So much of this is never something that we'd have, we would have chosen. It never would have been something that we would have asked for or requested. Yes, I would love to go through six months of this pandemic, isolating myself, being afraid to be in relationship and physical proximity to people that I love and care about. Nobody would have chosen this. But yet it came. But we're at a new place. Now, this pandemic isn't totally gone, but we are now starting to kind of see opportunities that we can reestablish relationships. We can begin to change and reconstruct our environment to be able to bring back relationships into the midst of our lives. And I think it's something that we must do. I think it's something that we have to do because of how important our environment is on who we are and how we live our lives. What my fear is for us is that over the last six months, we have become so accustomed to, so used to living in this place of isolation, whether it's physically or emotionally or spiritually, or E, all of the above. We've become so accustomed to it that once we were given the opportunity to emerge out of it, we'll just opt in to what we've already experienced. We'll just choose the default preset 
that we've been living in for the last six months. And that's not going to lead to a good place. I am fearful of the lasting consequences and impact of all of the isolation. Parents, I know that you see this in your kids' faces, the way that they're having to navigate virtual learning or the absence of sports programming or their after-school activities, being separated from their friends in so many ways. It is hard on everybody, maybe most obviously on our children. We can't continue this way. Once again, this does not lead to a place of flourishing. We have to become intentional about the way that we reconstruct our personal environments and the way that we prioritize relationships. Now, we are not the first group of people who've had to navigate something significant. The very first church found themselves in a similar place. It was not a global pandemic, but this group of Christians, this group of followers of Jesus Christ had to navigate a new world without their leader. Once Jesus was crucified and then resurrected and then ascended into heaven, all of his followers and disciples were left kind of wondering what next? How do we move on? Where do we go from here? How do we begin to live life? So many of them had come from faraway places and they started to wrestle with kind of the question and decision about, well, do we go back to where we're from? And how do we live in this new reality with this new understanding of what it means to be a human, what it means to live our life in the example of Jesus Christ? They begin to navigate what this would look like, how they were supposed to do it. And the conclusion that they came to was not, well, we're a certain type of person, and so that solves it. They were intentional about the way that they constructed their environments to lead to their ability to better follow in the way of Jesus Christ. They recognized that it was through the power of their relationships, through the power of their influence upon each other, that they were able to help guide and model and support one another as they tried to live like Jesus. So I want to share with you a passage this morning that I think creates the perfect blueprint for how we should move forward as a church and how as followers of Jesus Christ, we should move forward in our daily lives. So let me read to you out of the second chapter of Acts this morning. This describes the very first actions, the very first choices, the very first workings of Jesus's group of followers that would become the Christian church. So we are in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It said, The believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the community. They devoted themselves to their shared meals and to their prayers. They developed a pattern and a habit, a routine of listening to teaching, of living in community, of sharing meals with one another and praying together. And as they did this, a sense of awe came over everyone, both those within the community and both those outside of the community. The people that were outside of the community marveled at the way that they lived their lives differently from the rest of the world. And the way that that seemed to lead to their flourishing, to their betterment, to their development, to a life that seemed to be full and rich and beautiful. And it said that God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. And then in verse 44, all the believers were united. They were of one mind, of one spirit, and they shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. They would sell pieces of property and distribute to those who were in need. Now, 
What I'm not going to suggest is that we all pull our resources together and then create some type of distribution. It's not what I'm suggesting, but what I think what's beautiful is the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the believers, this first group of followers of Jesus, they leveraged all that they had for the ways that people were in need. Now, in the 21st century, in our modern world, many of us don't find ourselves in need of food or clothing or shelter. Those aren't our needs. We have different types of needs. We have emotional needs. We have psychological needs. We have spiritual needs. We have relational needs that I know that maybe this is what this would be suggesting to us, that we pull our resources to support one another, to care for one another, to lift each other up. Maybe it's not about sharing all of our physical resources. Maybe it's not about, you know, inviting families to to all live in one communal housing development together. No, it's probably not what that's suggesting for us. The way that we can live this out in our lives is we recognize that, hey, where do you need help? How can I help you in the ways that I'm blessed and have resources? Maybe it's relationally. Maybe it's emotionally. Maybe I can just come along you, side you and support you. Or maybe I have some networks or some connections that I can help you find employment if you're, if you're lacking that. There are lots of ways that we can come around one another to pool our collective resources and to support one another. And so the first church continues and it says, Every day they met together in the temple and they ate in their homes. They lived their lives together. They built their lives around their common faith and the common experience of sharing life. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. In essence, they gathered together. This group of people, they made time to be in community with one another. They didn't have the same opportunities and the same power of technology that we do, but they recognized the importance of sharing their lives with one another. They recognized how easy it is to live in a world of just shallow, thin relationships. A quick text, a quick social media message, a quick hello, a quick quick call, but they recognized the importance of a different type of relationship. They recognized the importance of slow and deep relationships, of spending meals together, of having deep, long conversations that we're not constantly checking our phone or checking our watch or thinking and wondering about the other places that we need to be. No, it's no, 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 I'm here, and I'm here for you, and I'm here with you in this moment. Let's talk. How are you? What's going on in your life? How is it with your soul? What's really hard for you right now? How can I support you? Here's what's really hard for me. Here's the ways that I need support. Here's here's what care would look like for me or for you. These are conversations that take time to develop. And my fear is in the world that we live in and the way that our relational fabric has been eroded, both because of COVID and through just the hyper-individualism of this world and the power of technology, we don't make time for slow, deep relationships anymore. Maybe we have it with one, maybe two people. But this was the defining characteristic of this first church people who shared their lives with one another, who supported one another, who spent time to learn with one another, to wrestle over what, you know, questions of faith meant and how they could live their lives better in the example of Jesus. They shared and met each other's needs, whatever that looked like. They grew together. They supported one another. They cared for one another. Now, the model that the first church created is the same model that I think we need in our lives today. Despite so many things being different about their world and ours, our basic human needs are the same. We need relationships. We need deep, meaningful connection. 
now more than ever in our fragmented, disconnected, isolated world. We need each other. We need people pouring into our lives and people that we can pour into their lives. Now here at the church, we call that Grove Groups. This is just a group of people who've decided to share their life together in a similar way to what we just read with the first church. Taking time to gather together, maybe sharing meals together, learning together, having discussions and conversations together, supporting each other emotionally, relationally, spiritually, recognizing that it's in that that God's glory and God's activity is most manifested. I love stories that I get to hear about our Grove groups, about those of you who have spent life in relationship and in connection and community with one another. My favorite type of story is the most common type of story I hear about our Grove groups. It's so often I'll hear about somebody who's in need, somebody in one of our Grove groups who has been struggling. There's been an illness. There's been a death. There's been a job loss. There's been some significant setback or impact on their life. And someone will tell me about it. Hey, Stephen, you might want to know. You might want to reach out to. You might want to pick up the phone and call or go visit. But then they'll always caveat it by saying, but I want you to know their group has already taken care of them. Their group has already set up a meal train. Their group has already connected them with people to help them find a new job. Their group has already gone over to the hospital to sit with them, to pray with them, to care for them. Almost every single time I find out about somebody who's in need in our community and in our church, who is a part of a Grove group, the Grove group has already beat me to that person. They've already gotten there to support and to care, to lift up, to come around alongside and to support these people. It is a beautiful thing and it is exactly what Christ intended when he set out his church. It's exactly the model that we just read about. The very first followers of Jesus Christ lived their life in community together because they recognized the power of their environment, their relational environment to build up and to create flourishing and betterment in each of our lives. And so for those of you who are in a Grove group, I hope that you will double down in your commitment for those of you who maybe were once in a Grove group, I hope that you will reconsider and reinvest in a group of people. For those of you who aren't yet in a group, I hope that you will today make that decision to take that step of faith. You have two ways that you can do that. One is you can reach out to us and we can help find you a group. We can help find a group of people who y'all have similar interests, lifestyles, demographics, whatever it may be. And we'll come alongside you and we'll help you find people that you can share and live your life with. The other option is that you just take an existing group of people, an existing group of friends, maybe the people that you're already doing life with, and we just give you the resources and the tools and equip you to take those conversations and to take those relationships deeper to a more significant, more meaningful place. The way that we live our lives with one another makes a huge impact on the type of life that we live. The first church gave us a beautiful example of what it means to be the church, to support one another, to live life in community. And in the world we're in now, that is the exact opposite of what it encourages us to do. It allows us to do. The exact opposite environment that it fosters. And so I hope today that we will be a people who will reaffirm our commitment to live in community with one another, who will reaffirm our significant impact of the way that community makes our lives better, who will commit to living life with each other. We need each other now more than ever. And so I hope that you will take advantage and join a Grove group today. 
There's ways that you can do that through our website. There'll be a link in the chat comments that will take you there. But we recognize how important it is for each of us that we live our life together. Do not just follow the default option that the world has currently provided to you. It's a place of isolation. It's a place of disconnection. I ask that you opt in. Opt in to find a chance for community. Opt in to find a chance for deeper meaning. Opt in to find a group of people who you can support and who can support you back. That'd be my prayer for all of us, that we have these type of relationships in our lives, that we are surrounded by a relational and supportive environment that leads to our flourishing. I think that's what God would want for each of us. And that's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. And we thank you for the chance to come before you this morning. We recognize that you created us to be in relationship with you and to be in relationship with one another. And so we ask that you help us take the initiative, have the courage, motivate us, inspire us, God, to take the steps necessary to begin to live our lives in deeper relationship with one another. For some of us, it means joining a Grove group. For others of us, it means reaffirming our commitment to our existing Grove group. But God, we know that when we gather together, you are present in our midst. And so we ask that you help us to make those decisions and steps today. We love you, God, and we're grateful for the way that you love us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.